Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Sporting Dog Talk podcast. I'm your host, Tony Peterson. Today, I am speaking with a fellow named Rody Best. He owns Best Retrievers down in Texas, and he's won about a billion hunt tests, and he's very, very accomplished dog trainer. Rody has never been on a podcast before, which is awesome because he has so much good information. And there were multiple times during this podcast where he said things I've never heard a dog trainer say before and offered up some solutions I've never heard and some some ways of interacting with a dog that were just incredible. And they just spoke to the sheer amount of uh, experience he has with dogs. I think you're absolutely going to love to hear what he has to say. This podcast is brought to you by Purina. You guys know I love Purina. You know I feed my dog Purina, and I always have fed my dogs Purina. There's nothing that ensures top-level performance better. This is because they put a whole bunch of good stuff in there. And in fact, if you start digging into Purina Pro Plan Sport, which is what I feed... You see, it's got a high level of protein, high level of fat, the omega-3s, the omega-6s, a whole bunch of good stuff for your dog designed to keep their joints and muscles going, give them enough fuel for the day. And what I love about it is you can dig into the ingredient list and realize every ingredient has a purpose. It's there for a reason. That reason is to keep your dog healthy, improve quality of life, improve the quality of life later in life. And I absolutely love it. If you're looking for what to feed your dog, check out Purina. This podcast is also brought to you by Lucky Duck. Everybody knows Lucky Duck decoys. They they make some really awesome waterfowl hunting stuff. Not everybody knows that they make the Lucky Kennel, which is which is a new product hitting the scene recently, and it is awesome. It's made in the USA, which I love, which we should all love right now. Uh, it holds a five star crash test rating from the Center for Pet Safety. That matters a lot because if you're traveling with your dog and you get into an accident and your dog is not in a good crate, your dog is in trouble. They accomplished this bulletproof design through a whole bunch of just rock solid features, uh, locking reversible door, all kinds of good stuff. But the best part about it is, maybe not the best part, but one of the parts I love about the Lucky Kennel is it's lightweight. So it's not a pain in the butt to move around. So you're actually going to use it when you need it, which is really important. If you need a new crate, go to Lucky Duck, type in Lucky20, L-U-C-K-Y 20. This code is going to get you a free kennel pad. It's worth 100 bucks if you go buy one of their kennels. As always, thank you guys so much for listening. It means so much to us. You check in every single week with us and you and you listen to us talk about dogs for an hour. It's it's amazing. We have the best listeners out there. I firmly believe that. So thank you so much. Come here, bear. Hunt dead, bear. Hunt dead. That dog is family do something with a dog, it, it improves your overall quality of life. But girl. Rody Best, welcome to the podcast, buddy. Thanks, Tony. I'm glad to be here. You uh, you, you came uh, onto my radar in kind of a weird way. I was... Uh, I was just looking for really well-accomplished trainers who haven't been on a whole bunch of podcasts, and I happened to just reach out to you, and then later was talking to Carl Gunzer from Purina, and he's like, oh, I'm going hog hunting with my buddy Rody," and I was like, "Rody Best? <laughs> he said, yep. I said, I just emailed him this morning, and I said, he hasn't got back to me yet. Rattle his cage a little bit, and so we, uh, we have a mutual friend, and now we're sitting down, and uh, it's a pleasure to have you on, man. I'm uh, glad to be here. Carl and I have a I mean, it's it's funny how our history has kind of flowed together. He worked at a place uh, for a couple of years, and and I came in shortly after him. And then he went to work for Purina, and then he was doing some field trial work. And I was I've been with Purina for quite a while, and and then I've been training gun dogs and hunt test dogs for a long time. So we have very similar history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you you have what like seven thousand different hunt test titles under your under your belt at this point, you, you've got, you got a lot. And I want to start with this because just randomly, I had a, a fellow reach out to me who wanted to get, I think it's his first gun dog. 
and he wants a GSP. So he's looking for German short hairs, lives out in Colorado, had this litter lined up, looked really good, good pedigree, the whole thing. And then something happened with the litter and he can't get one now. And so he's kind of in a panic and he reached out to me and he said, any help you can give me, I'll take it. And he said, I found a breeder who, who is, I think up in Idaho has some GSPs, has one available that he could get coming up here in a litter pretty shortly, but it's they're from field trial breeding. And so he said, am, am I going to regret getting a field trial GSP because the last litter he was looking at were coming out of hunt tests? And I said, man, I, I'm not really sure. And then I, I started to research you and I was like, well, here's the guy, here's the guy I should ask this question to. So what, what do you think there? Well, you know... <sighs> We, we train specifically or are mostly Labrador retrievers, retriever breeds, Labrador retrievers, golden retrievers, Chesapeake Bay retrievers. Um, we do train a few che- uh, GSPs, German short air pointers. Um, but our focus or our most of our work is with the retrieving side and not the pointing side. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. I mean, I've got guys I know. I'm, you know, networked and connected. Uh, a trainer that used to work for me is into the, the the upland work and does a lot of pointer work. And so I usually, you know, honestly redirect towards him and mm-hmm. let him take the, take the most of the pointing breeds and stuff like that. We just don't have enough time uh, or space to be able to train both retrievers and pointers at the same time. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we've dabbled a little bit in it, but uh, really didn't find enough enough time to be able to get it done good enough. Well, no, I know that. And I know, I know how into retrievers you guys are, but just, can you just comment on the, on the field trial, the potential things he might run into with field trial breeding versus hunt test breeding? Okay. I got you. I got you. So you're talking more like field trials versus hunt test dogs, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Um, you know, with, with field trial breedings, they've been bred to, to go long in our game. You know, they've been bred to have a lot of drive, a lot of desire. Uh, these dogs have to go four or 500 yards without a problem and have, you know, and love it and eat it up and want to do it again. Um, the hunt test game is more of a dog that has that desire, but is also controllable at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't persuade people away from field trial bloodlines. I just let them know you do realize what you're getting. Um, that's not to say field trial dogs can't hunt or don't hunt for people because they do. They yep. do. There's there's plenty of good, controllable field trial bloodlines. But you're going to get a dog that if you don't do your work and you don't do your foundation properly, you're going to have a very bored dog that wants to do something all the time. Yep. Yeah. And that was, you know, I, I, I kind of told him something similar to that because his, his concern was, you know, is this dog going to run? 500 yards out and, you know, be, you know, they're coming from big country and they're coming from field trial breeding. So, you know, they're going to be burners, you know, they're going to (laughs) work way out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like you said, for somebody who knows who's a really talented trainer, uh, maybe not, maybe not a big deal, but somebody who's maybe starting out with dogs or, you know, this is their first, second, third dog, maybe you could, you could find an easier route with a, with a hunt test dog. Right. I, I, I tell people, you know, don't shy away from it. Just do your homework and know what you're getting into. Mm-hmm. Um, you can you can train any kind of fire breathing dragon to to be controlled if you start early with a good foundation. Mm-hmm. And and that dog's going to look good. It's going to be stylish. He's going to have lots of energy and desire and he's going to look good. But you better do your work and you better do it early or else you're not going to be able to control them when they get older. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he uh I'm I'm going to direct him to this because I, I hope he gets a, you know, he put in a lot of work on that first litter to find the right one. And I'm just, I, you know, I don't want him to, to rush into this because the, the, you know, the dog fell through and there's just no shortcuts to picking a good one. There's the, the process takes time. And so you got to be a little patient with it. And so it's good information there. Um, I do hear some trainers talk about how they look for like a really nice mix of field trial and hunt test breeding. Is that to get the drive with, with the problem solving or what's going on there? You know, I see a lot of breedings that people post and and do out there. They've taken a hunt test dog, maybe a master hunter female and bred it to an FCA, FC, a field trial championed uh, male. And, I think that's great. I think the lines should be mixed. I don't think we should be exclusively one or the other. Um, I think 
what they're trying to do is get a little bit of both, you know, and I think that's a good way to go. We, we try to breed to, you know, nice quality field trial lines if we can, if they're available, but being down in Texas, we have a limited window when the, the, the snowbirds, what we call snowbirds are coming down here to train. They usually get here in January ish and stay till about April. We've got a four month window. And if a dog goes, you know, in season in August or July or late in our summertime or even in our early fall, they're not back yet. We're forced to go with AIs, which we, you know, don't always like to do with a first time female. So, you know, we try to do that, but our window of opportunity is slim mm-hmm. being, being here in Texas. Yeah, and that's, that's something that you don't think about um, if, you're, if you're really paying attention to improving the breed and, and the dogs that you're producing. Because you guys, you guys are pr- producing a fair amount of litters down there, right? Um, you know, what we do is a whelping service. So I don't actually have females that I breed um, or that I own and that I breed. We provide a service for clients who don't have the means or the time necessary to do that for themselves. Mm-hmm. And so it, we started doing it about maybe eight or 10 years ago. And I mean, it's been such a good thing for us because we're offering a service to our clientele who may want to breed a litter, but really don't want to mess with it or don't have the time or or they've done it once and said, no way, I'm not doing it again. No way am I doing that again. Um, but it also, when people come to our facility and they buy a puppy from us, they meet us, they get to see our place, and we're producing our future products. So these dogs, we wouldn't have bred them together if we didn't think they would make a good, suitable match and if we didn't want to train them ourselves. So we were able to get some of those back in for training, and it's really improved our our stock. Our, our, our dog's talent level and abilities have gone way up since we started doing that. Mm-hmm. And does it... Does it help you as a trainer being having that whelping part where you get to see, you know, quite a few different puppies probably deal with them from, you know, from the onset and then some of those puppies swing back around into your life and then you get to work with them? I mean, do you get to make connections between, oh, I remember this puppy when it was, you know, tiny and then now I get to see how it works and you go, oh, it acted this way then, it acts this way now. I mean, does that happen? Does that exist? I don't think you can you can make a, a good strong connection for that. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. I've got two dogs that are basically almost to the master level right now. Um, they're both from their brothers from the same litter, and very similarly talented, extremely talented. One is just more of a a pleaser. He he wants to work with me. He wants to do whatever I want him to do. The other one's a little more on the independent side. But looking back, when they were little bitty puppies, you couldn't I didn't see that. Yeah. So, you know, is that genetic or is that environmental? I tend to think it's probably a little bit environmental. One was raised with another dog in the house and the kids and, and a big family. The other one was raised just with a husband and wife. And is that the one that's a little more aloof? A little more about himself. Uh-huh. He's, he's still extremely talented and, and works hard, and but he's... He's more about himself a little more, you know, and, and not motivated to please me as much as pleasing himself. Is that, that's interesting. Is that like a, uh, maybe, maybe I'm way off here, but is there something that you could correlate with just, you know, them being pack animals and, you know, you bring a, you bring a puppy into a family with some kids and there's, there's this new pseudo kind of pack that they learn to live in versus this dog. That's like an only child dog that exactly. doesn't develop that. I think there's a lot to do with that. I think environmental plays into the equation more than people give it credit for. I think, you know, we talk about socializing puppies. Socializing them is is, is a big key word that everybody uses. But when I, I've seen it in litters, how important th- it is because this dog developed this way and this dog developed this way. Mm-hmm. Well, and we don't. So that, that's a really interesting point because we talk about socialization all the time, but we always equate it to an act of introducing that puppy to other dogs or other people or bringing them into the hardware store with us and, and new environments and stuff. But you don't think about uh, just the, the, the main house life situation they're raised in influencing you know, how, how socialized they are or, or well, how they might work together with you anyway. You know, I'll be honest with you, I haven't seen all of your podcasts, Tony, but I know one of the things that we tell people is buying two puppies from the same litter and trying to raise them is a huge mistake. I have tried it twice and I failed miserably and I know exactly what I'm doing. I know what I should be doing, 
But I mean, let's face it, when I get up at three in the morning, the last thing I want to do is take one out and potty him and spend 15 minutes with him, put him up, get the other one out and then do the same thing. I just get tired and I get them both out and hey, I come home from work. I'm tired. I just put the two of them together. And before I know it, they've bonded with each other and they don't want to spend any time with me. So, you know, I always I always try to tell people that if you can spend 80 percent of your day of, of that dog's life or his day with you. 80% and 20% he can spend with another dog or whatever. That's fine. But 80% of his day needs to be with you or by himself. Mm-hmm. How do you, so how do you reconcile that then being somebody who takes in puppies and trains them knowing, you know, you're the one that's training them. Are you, are you bringing the clients in to work with the dogs with you as well? Or, I mean, how do you, how do you look at that knowing that you, you, you might get the best results from spending 80% of the time with your puppy, but an awful lot of people are giving their puppies away or their young dogs away for, you know, however long your obedience classes are, or your advanced classes. Um, do, do you mean like how, how well are these people following the, 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 the guidelines that I give them? Is that what no, you no, mean? No, I'm, I'm saying, you know, if you say that, uh, it's best for you and your relationship with your dog to spend 80% of the time with them. Well, a lot of people are taking their dog and they're handing it off to a guy like you or Tom Dockin or somebody, and they're not spending time with that dog. You are. So are you saying it's as long as it's a person training, working with them, it doesn't matter? It doesn't have to be that individual? It, right. It's oh, about okay. the bond. So as long as that dog is not bonding to another dog in the house, we get dogs in here all the time. And I can tell that dog has spent most of its first six months of its life in a backyard with another dog. It doesn't have the interaction with humans. It doesn't want to please a human. It really cares. You're just something holding him back. You're just holding on to his leash and keeping him from being with that other dog that he wants. So we we think it's more important that they they learn how to interact with humans mm-hmm. and 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 please us and and want to work for us. Yep, that's interesting. That whole. Uh buy two dogs out of the same litter thing. We, we hear that story once in a while. Our, our neighbors did that. They bought two Kiernan Terriers. You know, this was like 10 years ago. They bought a male and a female out of the same breeding. And I actually think they were pet store dogs or something. They were, anyway, they were terrible dogs. They didn't get any training. They ended up, they bit my dog. They bit my daughter. I mean, they just, they're gone now, mm. but you could see that there was no, you, you weren't reeling those dogs back. That you, you like what you're talking about. You could just see they were too far gone to work with just about. And maybe, you know, maybe somebody could have done something with them. But, man, <laughs> the owners weren't qualified. Yeah, I mean, we, we get two litter mates in all the time or two dogs from the same household. And, yeah, it's it's you're never going to have the same relationship that you would if you had started out and separated them early. But there is hope. There is a good chance that with a lot of time and a lot of attention, we can get them. Now at first in the first week, you get them out of the kennel and you take them for a walk and you start working them. They're going to be looking over their shoulder going, Hey, where's my brother? Where's my sister? Where's my friend? That's all they won't think about. They won't take food from your hand. They won't chase a toy. They won't do anything. All they want to do is be with their other one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, it's a pack disruption. Um, some, something just occurred to me, anybody who's listening to this, who might ever, ever consider, uh, getting two puppies at the same time, same litter, not the same litter, whatever. Do yourself a favor and go find somebody, find a couple who has twin babies and babysit <laughs> them for one night. And then tell me in the morning, cause we, you know, we have eight year old twins. Uh, it teaches you real quick that you don't want two infants <laughs> of any sort, four legged or two legged. It's a lot of work. And you know, there's a, you know, I, and then obviously it can lead to these de- developmental issues that you're talking about with dogs. So it's a, uh, it's a, it's wise words there from you, Rody. Yeah, but I grew up, uh, you know, my best friends were twins, two guys named Jason and James. And I was friends with them all through high school. And there was that bond they had that was inseparable. Yep. And, and you know, I was never close to one or the other more than it was. It was maybe I like to spend a little more time around this guy. But those two, they were always, you know, inseparable. It's incredible. I mean, my daughter's. You know, everybody's going a little stir crazy in the whole pandemic thing, but 
my daughters, I'm, I'm trying to get them to understand, like, you know, the neighbor girl next door, she's by herself. She's the same age as them, but she's by herself. She can't play with anybody. My little girls, I mean, this didn't even like, it, yeah, obviously mm-hmm. it disrupted their lives, but they have their best friend with them all mm-hmm. the time. And it's just an incredible thing. So even, even knowing that, don't get two dogs at the same time, two puppies. No. <laughs> I tried. I, I failed. Yeah, it's it's a tough one. So why retrievers, man? Why 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 primarily labs? Why why all retrievers? I you know I grew up as a, a hunter of everything. I hunted some birds. I hunted deer. Uh, but you know when I was in college, I got introduced to a guy that took me goose hunting for the first time. And I, I look back and I think now what I know, the dog was probably terrible, but my memories of it was just, oh my gosh, that dog is incredible. You mean, you mean he sits here beside you and goes and gets your birds and you don't have to do anything? That is awesome. I got to have one of those, you know? And, and what it did was it combined my love of animals and my love of hunting and bam, I mean, it just came together. And I, I've just always been a, a waterfowl hunter. I love the the work that goes into the, the, the slop and the, the dirt. I mean, you get nasty and you're up to your, up to your chest in water and you're having to call the ducks and you have to work them in. And there's so many things that go into that. And then just being able to sit there, even on a slow morning and be able to love on my dog. I, I, there's, you can't lose. You can't lose when you go out and you do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty cool thing. Do you, are you doing any uh, upland hunting down there? You know, I, I've done a little bit. We can go up to the panhandle. You know, I can go six, eight hours and, and probably be into some some pheasants. And I've done quite a bit of that. Um, but it's it's just a little inconvenient for my location. Um, primarily in my area, we do a lot of waterfowl hunting, a lot mm-hmm. of dove hunting. So that's what I kind of, that became my niche. That's what I carved out. Yeah. And, it, you know, you so you turned... You just, you just had a natural bend toward duck and goose hunting anyway. And, you know, there isn't a better option out there than a lab or a chessy basically for doing that. And so you're just, you just kind of drawn to that. And I was, when I, when I was digging into your, uh, your history a little bit, I saw that, uh, down at your facility down there in Texas, you have, you built a whole bunch of different kinds of ponds to train in, right? We did. Like, I want to talk about that because that's. That's not, I, I'm hearing that from trainers more now that they're building custom ponds, flooded timber, different, different styles. But it, I don't, I don't recall hearing that like commonly very long ago. So it's, it feels like something people are like, there's so much value here that I'm, I'm writing the check for that bulldozer. I'm doing whatever I can to get somebody <laughs> in and build it. Can we, let, let's just talk about that a little bit. How, how many do you have? Uh, Gosh, I'd have to count them. We probably have. 10, 10 to 12 different ponds. Uh, what's worked for me, and, and I don't think most people would have the luxury that I have, and that is we have a staff, and I have a trainer named Luke that has been successful. He can train advanced dogs. And in the summertime, when it gets really hot, most of our master hunter dogs go home for a few months. And so the, the our, our top dog level, the load goes down a little bit. And so I'm able to push my dogs over to Luke and I'm able to actually get on the dozer myself, which I really enjoy doing and building exactly what I want. So I spend anywhere from a month to two months every summer adding more water. Mm. So you get to make them. I mean, what, what are you looking for when you make them? Like, what, how, how does that process start when you're like, oh, I need another pond and I don't have this kind yet? Well, you know, like the flooded timber that we have, it, it kind of. It wasn't a goal from the beginning, but we had an area that was unusable on my property. It was a bunch of softwood trees that we couldn't train in, had a creek running through it. And one day I just got the idea, hey, I got all this dirt from this other pond that I need to move. Why don't I build a dam and catch all that water and then flood them trees? And everybody looked at it and said, you're crazy for killing all them trees, but they're softwood trees. We weren't utilizing the property at all. And it turned out that, you know, I thought, hey, I'm the only guy, only place that has flooded timber for training. And we built a big, big blind in there. I mean, you'd have to go to Arkansas to get something like that. There's not many places like that in Texas. But, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of my clients go to Arkansas and they hunt. So their dogs have seen a blind like that and they've hunted in the flooded timber. They've been trained in it. So it worked out great. Yeah, that's a that's really interesting because you're actually it's it's cool that you have the ability and the means to create uh, 
a you know a near exact replica of the kind of hunting those dogs would be in, and then you can train them through that. That's like it's pretty incredible to hear. Well, you know, while I enjoy running the Master Nationals and I enjoy running the weekend hunt tests, the my love is in hunting dogs and gun dogs and in waterfowl. So I enjoy sometimes just taking these master hunters and going down to the flooded timber and letting them do a hunt out of the flooded timber. You know, mm-hmm. let's not worry about a 300 yard mark with three water entries and in a white coat. Let's take them down there and, and let them enjoy. And you'd be surprised how their attitudes peak up. And all of a sudden they're like, Hey, that's what all this hard work has been for. I get to do this. This is fun. It's kind of like taking them to recess. Mm-hmm. And so We've been able to do flooded timber. We we built a pit blind last summer that uh, we call it the millet pond, and I, I I've got it where I can drain it and I can plant it, and I've got corn in Milo growing in it right now. Um, we'll flood that late in the summer, and we'll train dogs out of it and and run dogs out of the pit blind. Um, we've got technical water for hunt tests. We've got just big open water for guys that hunt lakes and stuff like that. So I just try to think of all my hunting situations and make sure that I can have that available to any of these dogs that are coming through our program. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so cool to think about, to ha- just have all those different little training environments to work through and prepare a dog so well. Um, I want to, I want to talk, you, you mentioned something there and I, I just randomly ran across this. I don't remember what I was reading, but somebody wrote something the other day that I read that said, he, he said he felt guilty. Uh, you know, he, he kind of alluded to the fact that he has a high level performing dog. And I don't know if it's a, it's a trialer or a hunt test dog, or if it's just his hunting dog, but he kind of realized that he wasn't giving it a whole lot of praise because it was so it was good enough where he expected it to do his job and kind of hadn't really had, you know, had kind of moved away from feeling like you got to give him a lot of love and had started gone back and started really offering up some like lovey dovey praise and said that dog just changed. Like the, the personality came out even better. It's kind of seems like what you're talking about when you're running, you know, master hunters and these dogs that are so accomplished. And now you go, I'm going to give them training, but I'm going to give them some, some play involved in there. I mean, is it, is there like a psychological benefit to that? Well, it's funny you bring that up, Tony, because I don't think anybody's ever said this or put this out there, but my wife, and I thought she was crazy when she first said it. Have you ever heard of the five love languages? Mm-hmm. Okay. It's, it's basically that people have a couple of different love languages like uh, gift giving or acts of service or so, so, such and so forth. My wife can elaborate more fully on it, but she believes strongly that dogs have five love languages, just like people. And she believes when we teach our trainers coming up, you know, with a young dog, you need to find that dog's love languages and speak his love language. So if he enjoys physical petting, then make that how you praise him. If he enjoys verbal praise, then make that how you reward him. If he, in, if it's a acts of service or it's a retrieve or it's a toy or it's food, find, she'll elaborate on the five that she's got picked out and lined out. But basically, I mean, it's, it's, she's got a good point and it's exactly what you're saying is you find that dog's language which makes him feel good about himself and want to please you and you'll make you'll get the best out of that dog every time that is interesting um especially because you know just just with retrievers for example we always hear like oh the the retrieve is the reward you know bringing the bumper back and obviously some dogs that's like you know dying and going to heaven you can you can see that and read Mm -hmm. that but we don't think you know, hey, this dog that's not quite as is driven to retrieve. We don't think that that dog needs some other kind of love. And uh, yeah, you, I, I've never heard anybody say that. I think that's that's super interesting. Well, when when you are a say a, a top field trialer, you're gonna get the best of the best. You're gonna get dogs that just love to retrieve. Yeah, every one of those dogs that comes into your thing, you're gonna throw them a retrieve. That's their reward. But when you're a gun dog facility like we are, that trains a, a multitude level of dogs, we're going to get dogs in here that, that don't have a pedigree, that have not been raised to enjoy retrieving. So we're going to have to kind of dig into them and figure out what is it that makes them tick? What what do they like to do? What Do they like me to pet them? Just spend physical time with them. You know, we may just go sit on a bench and spend 15 minutes petting them and talking to them and, and just making them feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. 
That's that's really interesting, um, and it's it hits a little close to home because my wife's a lot smarter than I am too, and so she she's always pointing out stuff like that that I you know I think sometimes uh, us guys you know kind of blindly go through life and we've we're maybe a little more task driven and and end result driven, and then your your wife comes along and and reads the situation and says you know this is actually what's going on. It's like oh <laughs> yeah you're probably right. Well, you know, and, and we read when we study, you know, I've done a lot of canine behavior and studying that. And one of the things that we've been taught is not to anthropomorphize uh, a dog. Don't say that they have they did that for revenge or they have human emotions. Don't don't tie them into a human and make them human. But, you know, in a way, what she's saying is correct. But it's you know, it's just it's a it's a way for people to understand mm-hmm. what we're, what we're talking about. It's not really truly the dog, you know, knows what love languages are. The dog doesn't, you know, n- understand those things, but it's a way for us to communicate to our clients and our owners and our trainers that, Hey, these five things you need to think about, cause this is what the dog will work for you the best if you'll do that. Yeah. Well, and it, yeah. And it, I mean, that's a good point. You know, we, they're not fur babies, right? They're, they're dogs, they're canines, but it, there is the undeniable aspect of the coevolution in the last, you know, 40,000 years or however it's been going on, however long it's been going on, and the undeniable reality that there are dogs who respond to different kinds of praise. It's just yes. it's how they operate. And so figuring that out, and I, I almost kind of think, may, maybe I'm way off here, but I, I almost kind of think dogs tell you what kind of hunting they really like too. And you can you can read a dog and go, this dog it's, it's ducks. That's all they want. They want to sit there next to you and they're going to pound through those waves and they're going to retrieve and they'll, they'll break ice to get it. Some dogs are like, no, I'm not, not, that's not my thing, but you get them into the pheasant slough or something and, and you just watch them just eat, just, just come alive. Well, and, you know, and some of those dogs have not been bred to be able to sit still for very long. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, dove hunting and waterfowl hunting may not be for them. They may be a better flushing dog, you know, and work on upland. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you just have to know the dog. I've got dogs that come in that don't really like water. And I mean, I can remember taking a, a golden a few years ago and the client said, you know, I don't really hunt, but I, if you ever go hunting, would you mind taking my dog? I said, sure. I'll, you know, I'm looking for any excuse to go hunting. Right. So I, I took her out and, and, you know, in Texas, we don't get below freezing very often, but just so happens this weekend that I went, it got down to 14 degrees and that's really cold for us. And we got about two inches of ice on the pond and we were breaking ice. Well, we didn't know what we were doing. We don't get ice that often. And the dog was good for about five retrieves. And after that, you know, she looked at me and she goes, you know what? I'm just, I'm not into this anymore right now. I'm cold and that ice is not easy to swim through and I'm done. So we had to pick up the rest of our ducks ourselves. But it goes along with what you're saying. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's when you're when you're getting into that, those conditions, and, and not not to say that golds can't do it. Golds can. I love them. But that's like chessy territory, and and you know that lab that's hardwired for ducks. You know, because that's right. that's extreme stuff. You know, I mean, it, you think about even. You know, sometimes you can, you know, obviously you're going to have a vest on and in, in, on your dog in those situations, or sometimes people will double them up, but that's, you know, they're still hopping into water and coming out and it's just, it's just brutal. You you need a special kind of dog to say, I'm, I'm here all day, boss. Let's just do it. Well, it's just like uh, introducing a dog to gunfire or introducing a dog to a bird for the first time. We don't have an opportunity to introdu- introduce a dog to ice it just doesn't happen very often so she'd never seen it before and when she said you know i'm i'm not going out there for that sixth duck i said okay you know i'm not going to make you you know you you've had enough and you've had a good experience so we'll stop there yeah and you know the danger in that story is you know you're somebody who can read a dog and go okay this is not good for this dog somebody else might sit there and let their ego have a say in it and go nope you're gonna sit here and retrieve and then that dog may never hunt ducks again for you Especially not in ice water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it's it's so interesting. You know, if if you had told me that story and hadn't told me it was a golden, I in my mind I probably would have went. That was probably a golden because <laughs> just just how they're wired. And you know, it's it's so interesting with that breed because they're you you know we just we just had this woman on Danielle Daniela Carrera who's training service dogs of all kinds and and field bred you know hunting line goldens are her thing she's like they're the ones who can do the medical detection and they're the ones who just 
they live to be with you and do, you know, learn these complex tasks with working with people who have mobility issues and stuff. And it's just like, or, or we had an avalanche dog, uh, trainer, a rescue dog trainer on, and he's like, goldens are your dog. And it's, it's just, it's cool to see them find that lane. Cause when you know their personality, you're like, yeah, I can, <laughs> I can totally see them fitting into those roles. Yeah. You know, I used to work for a, a place and we did search and rescue work and, detection work and stuff like that. And, you know, so I, I understand a lot of the different aspects out there. I'm not a professional by any means in, in the search and rescue and stuff like that, but I do know what kind of dog it takes. And you're right. Goldens are, are very good at that, but you know, people give goldens a hard time, but the, like the three that I've had that have master titles, I'd put them up against anybody's Labrador retriever any day. They're, they're that good. They usually have a better nose than any Labrador retriever. You know, a golden's nose is to me, the best for what we do. Um, you know, you got to deal with longer coat issues and stuff like that, but they're, they're not afraid to get in the water. These three that I have are not afraid to get in the water. They, they will get in the water anytime. So, you know, I've had plenty of labs that wouldn't get in the water. So it's, it's hard to, to especially to, to tag a breed down, but you know, what, what you said earlier was, was spot on. And that is if you breed for field goldens or you're going to have that, what you need. It's when, we water them down and try to make them into something else, a show dog or something else. When we take out that ability to be a field dog, then they're not suited for it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've, we've been down that road many times on this podcast and it's all it is, is just a cautionary tale on if you love goldens, just you're going to have to do your research, you know, but we're really seeing that with, you know, the, the bar for good dogs now is pretty high and we're seeing just the general awareness of people going, I, I know what I can get now. And there's kind of a path to figure out how to get there or enlist the help of somebody like you. And there, there's just an awesome awareness that good dogs are out there and well-bred dogs and healthy dogs and intelligent athletes. And I just, I love seeing it where people are, they're making good choices around picking pups. Yeah. You know, I was at the master national uh, this year in South Carolina last fall. And one of the guys joined my group had a Boykin. And I've always been a Boykin lover. I just, I like how big of a heart they have. For just a little dog, man, they like to go and they like to work hard. And I, I mean, I loved watching this guy's dog. And, and someday I'm going to have one. But uh, when I do, I'm going to call him because he probably knows the right bloodline and the right, you know, where I, what he's going to point me in the right direction. Mm-hmm. You, so you've never trained one? We've trained a bunch. Oh. I've just never owned one oh, personally. So what, what, what is it about them? You know, I, honestly, I think it comes to when my wife and I first got married, we had a Cocker Spaniel. That was what she wanted. And, you know, her name was Snickers and we raised Snickers until she died. And, and I guess to me, I have kind of a love for that breed. And, and I've, we had a good English Cocker that came in that uh, about two years ago that was super, super nice. And I mean, that dog for its size was twice as good, you know, as some of the labs that I've had come through here. Mm-hmm. So I just, I'd like to, to almost, it's like a challenge. I want to take that dog and make, you know, everybody look at it and go, wow, you can do that with that little dog. That is cool. Yep. Well, yeah. And you, you know, you mentioned their heart and man, a, a well-bred English Cocker or a Boykin is a sight to freaking behold out in the field. They're just, love it. Is it, it is like, it, it, watching them, you know, letting them out of the crate and into the field is like watching, like you just unleash joy <laughs> out there and they're like just gone. So it is so, it, it is cool. You know, a lab is happy when he's working and, but a Boykin or, a, or an English cocker, there's no doubt they're happy. You, you have no, you don't have to question where they're happy to be out there. They love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, back up a second. You, so you mentioned, you just mentioned a little bit ago that you've had, you've had plenty of labs that wouldn't get in the water. What, what do you do when you, you know, somebody shows up with a lab and it's six months old, five months old, whatever it is coming into training. And you, you know, you're, you're looking at this water introduction thing and going, this dog is not having this. So how, what's the work through there? First of all, you know, I'll say that we've not been able to get every dog swimming that, you know, we have methods that we try, but we're not always successful. Sometimes those dogs just don't have the heart for it. They don't want to get in, but I'd say 90% of the dogs that we have, we can get them into the water. We do a couple things. Um, you know, if they love to retrieve, our job's going to be pretty simple yep. because 
we can use that and encourage them to get in some little skinny water, two or three inches of water and start there and then build from there. Um, the, the hard ones are the ones that won't even get in two or three inches of water. You know, uh, we will try jealousy. If they like to be around other dogs, we'll get a dog out that likes to retrieve and we'll throw retrieves for it and try to get that dog to chase it into the water and realize, Hey, if he, if he don't mind it, then maybe I shouldn't mind it. You know, Mm -hmm. we'll get, we'll get out there with them. If, if it's the last resort and kind of persuade them to come out in the water with us and show them that it's not that bad. But, uh, you know, in Texas, there's a only probably a month to two months that we can't get dogs in the water around here. Uh, 10 months out of the year, the water's warm. It's very easy to get dogs in. So what I'm really surprised with is the number of dogs that come in here, though, that don't know how to swim. For being Texas, I don't know if it's maybe just people don't have the time or the ability to find a place that has water, but there's a lot of dogs that come in here that are going to be gun dogs or hunting dogs, you know, that don't know how to swim. Uh, that's amazing. How, like, what's the age range on those dogs that don't know how to swim? Well, the, the dogs that come in to our basic gun dog program start at six months. So typically they're at right, at right about six months of age and they've never been introduced to water. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to point blame on anybody, but I just think people don't realize how important it is to get them swimming early. Yeah. Well, yeah, especially in a place where, you know, you're going to have warm water to work with and warm temperatures to train them in and get them a little fired up and then do that proper introduction. But that's that's kind of... I I would not have expected to hear that that you see that many that many labs that don't know how to swim at six months old. That's amazing. They don't even know how to get. They've never been in water before. Now we've had a few dogs that um, and and there's different terms for it. Some people call call it water freaking. Um, I call it puppy splashing. But we've had two dogs that I can recall that are two two years old or older that get out in the water and just start splashing with their front front feet and biting at the water. And I don't know if you're familiar with the term. You've heard it before. Mm-hmm. I had not really heard it until a few years ago. And I'm, I'm thinking, what are y'all talking about? And then this dog came in. I thought, oh, my gosh, how are we going to fix this? I mean, this guy. And, and I was like, he, but he's not freaking. He's not scared. He's playing. You know, he's not out there scared. He's having a good time. And so we, we stopped calling it water freaking and we just called it puppy splashing. And that's what we call it. Yeah. So they're just, they're just in this new medium and messing around and they just don't know how to get through it. The first one that we had, I think what had happened at a young age, he was allowed to go just swim and play in the water all the time. And there was no, you know, supervision and he would just go down and play in the water for hours. And so anytime we get him near water, you, if you didn't have a way of stopping him from getting in the water, he was getting in and he wasn't getting out. You were going to have to swim out there and get him. And so we learned quickly not to get him near water unless we had a way to stop him. And then we had to teach him, you know, basically that, you know, you have a job to do. When you enter that water, you are to go get that object. Mm-hmm. And from here to there, if you're, if you're playing or you're not doing your job, then you're going to get in trouble. And as long as you do your job, everything's great. Mm-hmm. So he learned quickly that when we're training that he had a job to do and you put him on task and he was great after that. But, uh, you know, you get it. I'm sure if, if the owners were to take him out to a pond and just let him jump in the pond, he's probably going to do it again. <laughs> Would you when, when you're talking about a pup like that, where your 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 goal is to get them to understand when they get in the water, there's a job and that job is a retrieve and you you straight line it and you come back to me. Are you are you doing like short retrieves on a check cord or how are you starting that? Well, you know, everything is based on fetch. You know, they're taught to fetch an object. We start off, you know, it, it, on, on you know, people call it force fetch. I'm sure you've touched on the subject and talked about it in the past. We call it formal fetch um, because we believe that more accurately describes we're formalizing the fetch process. Mm-hmm. We are teaching a dog to how to properly hold and fetch an item because at that point after that, it's no longer playtime. It's work time. So, you know, you start off with the formal fetch program and then from there it's a toss on the ground and it's 10 feet, it's 20 feet and it's, before you know it, there's 100 yards or 200 yards. But your job is to go get it and don't play with it, don't drop it, go get it, bring it back and deliver it to me in in good shape. Mm-hmm. 
when you when you mention these dogs that come in at six months old and they don't know how to swim, you know they haven't been introduced to water. Are are these just so? I'm I'm going to assume here that it, you know you guys whelp a, a litter down at your place, and some of those puppies are coming back. You probably have some communication with those owners and say, are you saying, hey, you might want to be doing this, this, and this to give them a head start, so when they come back to me, we can really ramp up this education. And so, are these dogs that are coming in that don't know how to swim? Are they just people who find you and they go, this lab needs work and roadie's got the place and the means i'm going to call him up and i'm showing up with this total question mark that's six months old well i mean our clientele varies you know but i'd say 50 percent of my clientele are, are repeat customers and the other 50 percent, i would say probably 30 to 40 percent are new clients that have heard about us and and then there's those those 10 percent that we we call them remodels they're they're clients that have had dogs with somebody else and for whatever reason, it didn't work out. And we're, we're tasked with the process of remodeling them. So, you know, if you think about it like that, 90% of those clients have had some experience with us in the past mm-hmm. or, well, I'd say, I'd say 50% have now the 40% they haven't. And, and when they call us, cause we usually tell people, you know, we're booked two or three months in advance. So call us early. When we talk to them at that point, we know we've got two or three months before their dog comes in. We prep them then and say, please, you know, try to get your dog near water. Don't worry about this. You know, focus on that, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, you know, there's a a really common theme popping up now with, with dog trainers where there's, there's a real effort to make it sort of a team you know, a team process to work with dogs. So it's, I think a lot of people look at it and they go, I can get any kind of dog I want and I can do nothing with it. And I can drop it off at roadie's place. And I show up six weeks later and that dog is a rock star and that's just not how it works. And it's not, not only does that not work, but it doesn't allow the owner to develop the rapport with the dog as well as they need to, to make this thing really hum and get their money's worth out of what you do with them. Well, you know, you touched on something that people these days are used to buying a product and getting what they want when they pay for it. And let's face it, with an animal, that's not that's not going to happen. We're we're not producing robots. We're taking an animal and we're trying to get the best out of it that we can and give it back to you. And its success depends on what you've done before what we've done while it was here and what you do with it when it goes home. Mm-hmm. So if those three things aren't optimized, you're only going to get 90% of the dog's ability, 80%, maybe 50%. Yep. Well, yeah. And you're not, you know, I, I just had a random conversation with a, with a guy I know in the hunting industry and we were talking about uh, how we're losing hunter numbers, you know, in, in not, not bow hunters as much, but general firearms hunters in a lot of States and just, you know, all the different reasons and the same conversation, lots of people have had, but we, we kind of got into the, and this guy, this guy used to train uh, Navy SEALs to survive Arctic conditions. Like he's a, he's a badass, and he's really been, he's, he's done a lot of impressive things. And we just got on the topic of doing doing things with consequences that like that mean something to you and you know kind of what you're talking about here in society we're really used to you know you turn on netflix and you you crack open a beer or whatever but you're like there's no consequences to your actions really and then you look at a dog you know getting a hunting dog and that this companion you go man really to have the best the best thing come out of this as possible, you have to invest a lot of time and it's not enough to write somebody like you a check and go, all right, make my dog amazing because there's still something that has to be done on your side. And actually a ton of some things that have to be done on the owner's side. Yeah. We always tell people you can save us a lot of work if you start your dog properly and here's the things you need to do. And a lot of that go, you know, it goes even further when a client calls us, uh, and leaves a voicemail or they, they communicate with us email or text these days, you know, 20 years ago when I started, you know, I'd have to turn a phone. Call. We didn't have text back then. I'd have to return a lot of phone calls. And that was done in the evening when I got home after training. But nowadays the clients want instant gratification. They're used to, like you said, sitting down in front of Netflix and getting what they want right when they want it. And I just tell people a lot of times, Hey, if you're, if I'm not communicating with you right away until that night or maybe even the next day, that's a good thing because that means I'm out there working your dog and getting the best out of it. And so, you know, I, I just wanted to bring that up because that's something that I don't think people think about with dog trainers 
if if we're on Facebook or we're out there on social media and we're we're putting a lot of stuff out there, I mean, unless you've got somebody doing that for you, if you're the one doing it, you're not spending the quality time you need to be with the dogs. So I just I'd be frank with my clients and I said, hey, if I'm talking to you for 20 minutes, that's 20 minutes you just took away from your dog today. Yeah. So let let's try to keep things, you know, texts are great. We can keep things short and sweet. I'll send you a video while I'm working or heck, come out with me and train with me while we're working and you'll get to see your dog and 19 others worked or whatever. Um, do you does is it does that happen a lot? Do you get people to come in and shadow you? We we I'd say in the last 5 years it's become more and more common. Um I don't think it was as much 10 years ago, people were more likely just to drop their dog off. But I, I don't know if it's just the clientele that I have nowadays, or maybe it's the reputation we've ga- uh, gained, but people will come out, maybe sometimes three or four people will sit and watch and, and, and ask questions. And, and, I, and for me, I'm a, I'm a born teacher. I love to educate. So when somebody asks me, why did you do that right there? And I get to explain that it makes me feel better because somebody learned something. And so mm-hmm. maybe they're likely to go out tomorrow and not make the same mistake that, cause I, I learned that by making a mistake two years ago and figuring it out. So now I saved you the trouble. Yep. Do you, do you ever anticipate making that a part of your, your training program and having the, the owners come in, you know, once a week or once every two weeks or something like that to work with you and the dog? We don't require them to come any certain amount of time, but we definitely recommend, you know, say once a month is a good time. You know, obviously, if if I have a client out every day and I spend a couple of hours one on one with that client, I'm losing a significant portion of my day. So if that person can can join my training while I'm training and I get to continue training these dogs and they learn not just by watching their dog, but by watching other dogs, man, down the road they may go, well, that dog did this. Uh, I remember that Tuesday when that dog did that and now my dog's doing it and I remember how to fix it. So mm-hmm. we'll, we'll fix it right now. Does it, is there a benefit there as well to having people see how other dogs work that are the same age and, you know, kind of under your care and, you know, they, they, they think the world of their dog, but then they get to see, you know, two, three, four other labs working that are the same age and they go, Whoa, that lab's a burner or look at how quick that lab. I mean, is, is there something there? Sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. <laughs> and I, I watched something just yesterday, and I and it said Theodore Roosevelt is 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 credited for saying it. And he said comparison is the thief of joy. And that's something I wrote it down and I put it in a notebook because that's what in, in, in my seminars and when my clients are trying to compare their dog's performance. You know, last year I had a dog get a Master Hunter title before he was two years of age. One day before he turned two. And a lot of people measure themselves by that. You know, they, they're proudly, I got a master title at 16 months of age and blah, blah, blah. It's not a race. It's a, it's a marathon. And so don't compare your dog. I'm going to take the, the, the pace that you're training. Your dog's going to get its title when it's ready. Mm-hmm. Not when you're ready and not when I'm ready, when it's ready to be able to do the job. So just trust the process and trust we're going to get the best out of it on his time scale. Mm-hmm. Not ours. Is this is this coming from a place of you know kind of having been there, done that? You've you've won so much stuff and you've you've accomplished so much. You see people who are sort of hung up on those milestones and those bragging rights of like, oh, I got a dog here, and you see that it becomes about them and not about the dog. Mm-hmm. When I, when I first started running, you know, as a pro, there were guys out there that had six, seven master dogs, and at that time, that was a lot of master dogs. And they'd be out there running six or seven. I'd be lucky if I had two master dogs on my truck. I was running six junior dogs, you know. But I guarantee you, my six junior dogs were the best junior dogs out there. And that's what I was proud about. You know, yeah, I didn't have six master dogs like that guy. But my young dogs were going to impress people because I know if they're watching them, those people are going to say, man, he's got really nice young dogs. And someday down the road, I'm going to have really nice intermediate dogs. And then eventually, I'm going to have really good master dogs. So, I wasn't any race. I, I wanted to prove to people that I could train any level of dog and, and, and get the best out of every dog. And I see a lot of guys these days, they, they see me out there with 15 master dogs and they think, man, I got to enter eight master dogs and maybe only four of them are really ready. Mm-hmm. Those four that do terrible. It's like the bad apple. You, everybody remembers those four that didn't pass. Yep. They don't remember the four you did pass. Yep. They remember the four that didn't. Well, and this, this, this is such an important point 
uh, on the the individual development of dogs as far as just when they're there and when they're not because you see and you know, this isn't just in the the hunt test or the trial world i mean you see people try to push dogs beyond their capabilities all the time and the wheels fall off and and bad sometimes results that you can't recover from happen from it it's the same conversation that you know a lot of field trialers don't like to run a lot of derbies because those derby dogs that are impressive at a young age some of them a lot of them don't turn out to be much at an older age because they learned a lot of bad habits when they were young running derbies Mm -hmm. so I don't like to run a master dog until it's ready and I know it can pass a master test, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And this, this is interesting because we often, on this podcast, we often get into like, uh, not asking the dog enough questions or not recognizing the dog's potential and, you know, kind of letting that dog, you, you mentioned way earlier about a dog that's bored out of his mind, not challenging a dog in the, in the right way to really get them somewhere. But at the other end of it is taking a dog that's got a lot going for it or, or whatever going for it and asking so much that it shuts down or it's just, it doesn't want to work for you anymore. I think that's where I'm pretty proud of our program. We, we don't take 18 dogs off my trailer and and do the same thing with them if we've got a triple and a blind setup i'm not going to run all 18 dogs on a triple and a blind i pull this dog off he may get two singles and and then we'll run a blind and then we'll run a single or we may run a double and a single or we may run you know there's there's endless uh opportunities in which i can run that setup and every dog when i get it off i'm going to think to myself what does this dog need to become the best that it can be. And so I think that's a challenge that it's very easy as a trainer, especially when you've been doing as long as I have to just get them out. And I call it the factory, you you know, here comes the dog and you stamp it and here comes the next one and you stamp it. And here comes the next one. You stamp it. If I want to give my clients the best that they're, they can have, then I've got to really dig into each dog and get in their mind and try to get the best out of each one. And that's going to be specializing the training towards each dog. Mm-hmm. And that's, there's just no way around that other than working with them and, and seeing where they're at. Right. I mean, and, and I just, you know, I just returned from Oklahoma this last weekend in a hunt test and, and I saw some of my dogs need this and some of my dogs need that. And so, you know, that's I, I, I on the way home, I'm my head going, OK, tomorrow I'm going to set this up and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And and that way I can hopefully kind of bring that weakness up a little bit and make it more into a strength. And, and I didn't, you know, going in, I thought they were solid all the way around. But I saw some things. I mean, you, you always get surprised a little bit in how they perform and you mm-hmm. thought they do good here and they didn't or they did better here than they they should have maybe. And so. You just got to reevaluate and in the next week have a plan. Mm-hmm. Is that is, is that one of the main motivations for doing the competition? Is it just gets you into a position where you get to see, you know, you get to see the results and you get to see the holes in the game and you get to watch how other people are handling it. And you just overall your whole training game every time goes up a little bit and a little bit. Yeah, you, you hit it right on there. You know, I went to a couple of Mike Lardy seminars and somebody asked Mike, how do you stay motivated? You've been doing this for what, 20, 30 years. How do you stay motivated? He said, every morning I get up, I know Danny Farmer is out there getting up the same time, or maybe he's getting up earlier than me. And I know he's out there trying to work harder so he can beat me. And so that's my motivation. I know, Hey, I've got a hunt test in two weeks. I want to do the best I can do. I want to make sure I have done everything going into that weekend that I could possibly have done. And that's, that's what keeps me from being bored after doing it for 20 some odd years it's easy to get into a, a grind and just just pump them out, you know, factory stamp them. But knowing that I've got responsibilities coming up, I've got a hunt test this weekend. I got to get ready for it. Keeps me motivated. Mm-hmm. Is it is it a similar thing with the hunting where you get out with the dogs and you get to go, you know, because there's even even going to the same blind in your favorite spot. It's not the same day, two days in a row. And you see you see different things happen. You hunt with different people. Do you feel the same way about that a little bit, where it's it's just beneficial for you as a trainer to watch how a dog performs when you're hunting? Well, there's 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 two types of hunts. You know, there's one type where I'll go with a client and I'll try to assist him. Maybe it's the dog's first hunt. Maybe he's having problems and he wants me to come along with him and show him, you know, how to fix something. But honestly, mostly my hunting, I don't, you know, as long as the dog's happy and they're not breaking, 
man, we're not worried about whether he lined that blind. Man, just go get the go get the bird. I think that's that's a good thing to hear because I think that uh, it's very easy to assume a guy like you would go go out there to your blind with absolutely perfect dogs and every you know mallard or teal that you clip and it sails off 400 yards that dog runs a perfect line and comes back and it's just not so not not so simple huh no i mean my hunting is my time that's me and the dogs and we're just gonna go out there and we're gonna relax and we're gonna have fun and enjoy nature and enjoy the opportunities that we have I'm not, you know, as long as, like I said, as long as the dog's not breaking and it's an unsafe situation, I'll, I'll give my clients a hard time. You know, I'll, one of my best friends is, it hunts with me all the time and he's a client of mine and man, I give him a lot of crap, you know, while we're hunting because his dog did this or his dog did that. It it took me a long time to, to not fret over that stuff Mm -hmm. because I knew I had spent two or three years with that dog, making him the best he can be. And here we are out here hunting. And he broke, but you know, it's fun and we poke fun at each other and hopefully he doesn't let the dog continue to do that. But Hey, it's kind of like, uh, I mean, I don't know. It's just kind of fun to laugh at and enjoy because we're not all being stiff and worried about perfect performance. We're out to have a good time. Yeah. And I was thinking about that. You know, I, a buddy and I were out in South Dakota, uh, bow hunting turkeys and camping on public land. And he's, you know, he's one of my best friends. We go on a lot of trips together and I was thinking about, how much we laughed and how much shit we gave each other. And the, you know, the whole time was a blast. And, but when you look at, you know, social media hunting or these magazines I write for, or the shows so often it's portrayed as this just dead serious, like, you know, middle of a firefight war, you know, just not this feel to it. That's just not genuine. And if it was like, if you were hunting with somebody and it was that serious all the time, it'd be horrible. And so I I love hearing you say that, that you just go out and have fun with the dogs and you're like, okay, well, you know, as long as we're not getting unsafe, we can let, we can, we can enjoy our time here and let the dog have some fun getting some retrieves. Oh yeah. We just, it's, you know, my time, I, I trained probably 11, 10, 11 months out of the year. And then I, it took me a long time to be able to do this, but now I've got a facility large enough and I got people that work for me that I take off, of, you know, anywhere from all of December and, and most of January or maybe half of December, half of January. And I don't train a dog. It's my time to recharge my batteries and get away from a dog. Cause I mean, let's face it, 11 months out of the year, I'm waking up. The first thing I see is a dog next to my bed. And the last thing I do before I go to bed is potty dogs Mm -hmm. and I'm training and I'm doing nothing but looking at dogs my all the time. And so it's a good break for me to just get away and go with my friends and we go hunting and I don't care about perfect performance or anything like that. It's just about having a great time and, and getting away from it so I can be ready to have enough energy to do it again next year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no, man, I get it. I love, I love to hear that. Um, we're about out of time here. I got two questions left for you. Um, one is about Carl Gunzer. Do you think he's a little bit weird with his collie thing? (laughs) You know, I, I may be different than most guys, but I enjoy all the different aspects of dogs. And so, you know, he's talked to me a lot about it. And, and I've actually babysat that dog for him when they went on vacation. Clark. And that dog, uh-huh, yeah. Clark, yes, sir. <laughs> and that dog is brilliant. I mean, I'm pretty sure he could beat me in a test. If we had a test on mathematics, he'd probably beat me. That dog is brilliant. Those, those it's really cool to see that. Yeah, those collies are uh, so impressive. It's just to see them work and to be around them, they, if you could, if you could get those dogs, you know, and you probably could get them to push up pheasants and go retrieve ducks, man, maybe you could, but man, they're, they're really, really neat dogs. I just said, no. So I I, I want to give you a little crap about that because I know how tight you are with uh, Carl. Last question (laughs) for you, buddy. So you're, you've had so much experience at all these hunt tests, competed one, what what's what's one time out there? What, what's the closest you ever got to punching somebody in the face during one of those hunt tests? <laughs> oh boy, I I don't even know. I mean, I I like to think I'm pretty much good at rolling with anything. So I've I've thought to myself, well, that wasn't really fair or something. But I you know the the 
I guess the thing that really the judging and stuff, I know it's going to be discretionary. There is no perfect answer. There's going to be some gray area and there's going to be some bad calls. And, and, and what I always tell myself and I tell my trainers are, yeah, you got a bad call today, but you remember last week when they passed that dog and they shouldn't have, you know, those things balance out and they do, you're not going to get a bad call every time you're going to get some good calls and you're going to, those are easy to forget. The good calls are, but You know, the, the thing that bothers me, honestly, the most is not the judging, but it's the way the dogs are treated by some of the trainers. And, and, and you know, I'm not going to name any names or nothing like that, but there's just, if you're not in it because you're, you're trying to make money or you're trying to seek fame or something like that, you're in it for the wrong reasons. If you don't love the dogs, then you don't have the right motivation to get up in the morning and get out there. You're not going to enjoy it. And if you're not enjoying it, you shouldn't be doing it. I, yeah, I've I've heard some horror stories about that. It, it, do those people who are who are like that? Do they last? Do they stick around, or do they get kind of called out? I mean, some of them, some of them honestly do. I don't know how. Mm-hmm. I think they're able to, you know, find that next client somehow. I don't know, but you know, we always have a saying that just takes one bad apple or one bad mistake or something for ten good ones. Mm-hmm. So, you know. I would think those things would catch up with those people after a while, but sometimes they don't. Um, honestly, today, now more than ever, there's more better trainers out there than there's ever been. Yep. There, and, and I like to think that we lead by example and we we show people because I've been doing it, you know, a long time more than a lot of those trainers out there. And if they see the enjoyment that I have and the the happiness that my dogs have when they're performing. They should seek that, and they should try to. That should be their goals too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a very very common, very easy to appreciate trend that's going on with dog training where the the positive reinforcement and the helping each other out and the community aspect, there's, there's a lot of really good stuff going on. And, you know, those, those folks who are, who are losing their cool at a hunt test or treating their dogs poorly, you know, they're a, they're a 20 second cell phone video away from, you know, (laughs) time to go lay sod buddy. Cause you're not training dogs anymore. And, you know, I that 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 kind of situation is so sad because you know it's just just a reflection on them. They got something going on and they can't handle it, and they're taking it out on something that can't, has no recourse for their behavior. I mean, I, I can you imagine being a dog that is stuck in that situation? You're a prisoner. Yep. You can't get away, and you have no choice but to try to comply. And you may not understand because probably that trainer is not communicating clearly and you're making mistakes by accident just because you don't understand what that person wants. I, I feel sympathy for them. And yeah. I just, just wish I could go out and educate a lot of people on how to make dogs happy doing what they love doing. Yeah. Well, you can, you go on podcasts like this, <laughs> tell people how to do it right. And you cross your fingers and you hope it happens. Uh, Rody, so much fun to chat with you, buddy. Why don't you tell everybody where they can, where they can uh, find your website, your social media, where they can contact you, all that good stuff. Our website's www.bestretrievers.com and our Facebook's Best Retrievers. We also have a Best Retrievers whelping page and same for Instagram, Best Retrievers. Perfect. Thank you for coming on, buddy. My pleasure, Tony. I enjoyed every minute. That's it for this episode of Sporting Dog Talk. Check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and our YouTube channel. And of course, if you liked what you heard on this episode, please, please, please subscribe. That helps us out so much when we get to see the support from our audience. And lastly, thanks for listening.